Welcome to Carrying Wayward, a supernatural podcast for fans who aren't ready to let go and newcomers to the series who are ready to jump in. I'm Marie Vigourou. And I'm Drew Shulman. In this episode, we're diving into Supernatural Season 5, Episode 9, The Real Ghostbusters. Let's get this show on the road. Going into this episode, again, this is a live watch with our uh, our patrons. I had no idea. I knew it would be a fun one because generally the two things that give me a good indication of an episode are a very silly title like this, or when I know the audience and everyone is really excited for me to watch it. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, generally, if we watch it with our patrons, it's going to be a good episode, whether it's a completely devastating one or a completely silly one. And there's no middle ground, frankly. And the worst part is sometimes the really funny ones end with heartbreaking devastation. <laughs> or start with heartbreaking devastation. <laughs> it's the best of both worlds. Exactly. Most of the trickster episodes actually are like that. <laughs> So with that in mind, I really had no idea what to expect from this. I don't know. I feel like it's a weird title. Like I know what they were going for, but being a Ghostbusters fan, it has some weird connotation. Like what? After the Ghostbusters were incredibly popular, they made an animated TV show. Yes. So I didn't know this, but when I looked up the title, The Real Ghostbusters, that's what I found. It's literally the name of the animated show. Had that animated show never existed, this would make sense given the context of the episode with the whole them being the real deal and everyone else being cosplayers and fans. But when you then factor in the fact that there is a real animated series with this title, it's like, is there a deeper meaning I'm not getting with this? <laughs> Supernatural is such a self-aware show that sometimes like it does things and you're just like, what? What are they trying to do? And it's very, I, I and I, I have some thoughts about this in critical time. Like, I find that this episode to be quite ambiguous in many ways. I don't know. I don't know how to answer that question, frankly. And I'm not just being like, I'm not answering that question. This is usually the area where I get you to be very honest. With all that said, though, before we get to the recap, I was going to just say, genuinely loved it. It's a complete filler episode with virtually no character growth. There is no character growth. However, there's a really important piece of information that we find out at the end. So how about I recap so we can get the long game so we can talk about all of it. Before we jump into that, I just want to remind everyone that we have some pins on our website. We've started seeing people receive them and post photos and it's just like... I know, they're out in the wild now. <laughs> and I just want to remind everybody that if you want to receive them before the holidays, you do want to order quite soon. You know, we've had a lot of... of really special episodes so we haven't talked about them all that much but this is really starting we're starting to get to the cutoff so just make sure that you order them as soon as possible if you want to get them for for the holidays i'm a happy little elf <laughs> would the elf like to give us our recap count me down three two one go the boys respond to a super urgent text message from none other than chuck their psychic future seeing prophet friend only to find out that it was a fake call by Becky who's back? Yay, kind of. I don't know. I'm still mixed feelings on her, but I like her in general. It turns out they are at a haunted hotel that isn't actually haunted, but is actually haunted for Supernatural Con. Did they give it a weirder name? I feel like there was a more like silly name they gave it at some point. Like, super... Oh, anyways, a Supernatural convention. But like one of those really small ones where it's like in a hotel lobby and there's like only really one booth and it's just more of like a 
get together for fans to like share stuff and have some themed events, but it's really adorable and really amazing. And then it turns out the fake haunting is a real haunting. And then a pair of cosplayers playing as the brothers actually have to go and end up defeating the ghosts for them because the brothers have to end up saving everybody. Nothing else really happens, but it's a really cute and wholesome and fun and adorable episode. There you go. That's the episode. So give me the long game because I'm really intrigued to know what that important detail is. Like I, a lot of things I really liked about it and things about the world we learned that I'm really happy about. But I'm really curious to see where this ending specific is. I think what's really interesting about this is that usually I enter my notes before you in the timeline of like pre-production. But in this case, I literally just entered my notes. So you haven't seen them. Or if you have, you've just glanced at them. So you have no idea what's coming for the long game. So this is pretty exciting. I usually don't read like the long game or too much of your notes in advance because I like to have that general reaction, but like not even like caught them this time. So So like you mentioned, Becky is back. Chuck is back too. This is the first annual Supernatural Convention. I think that's the title you were looking for, right? Yeah, so they do call the Supernatural Convention. I wasn't sure if it had more of a punny name and I was forgetting it. Nope, not even. They kept it very simple. Keep it simple, stupid. One thing I do want to highlight in the long game is that when Dean is told that Letitia Gore killed her own child, that's when he goes like, oh, I'm going to fry this bitch extra crispy. I think that this goes to show like how much parental abuse hits home for him. You know, it's such a natural reaction from Dean to be so like gung-ho about things, but like the fact that it goes from being just a ghost that's terrorizing to a ghost that hurt children, it just it, it like fuels him even further. Just to kind of get the timeline right here, like he knows that she's killed four kids, but when he finds out that one of them was her child, that's when he goes, I'm going to fry this bitch extra crispy. That's like not even like subtle. I think that that's, again, like loud for him to say. I believe that Damien and Barnes are the first openly queer couple depicted in a mostly positive light on the show. Yeah, I think the closest we get otherwise is the ghost facer who dies Ugh. almost immediately. Oh yeah, the barrier gaze. <laughs> yeah. Literally comes out into a grave. This is like our first true queer couple that is realistically a positive character. Right, like nothing bad happens to them. I mean, apart from the extremely traumatic events of the episode, like they don't die, they're not maimed, they're not evil. Another thing is that Chuck says that the first girl he ever had sex with, and I quote, told everyone it didn't count. I love how you're bringing this up, like it's relevant in some way, and I'm very <laughs> curious about how. Because that's it, the long game for the listener, like I know it's like a lot of like, here are some important points to hold on to, but oftentimes, especially moments like this, where it's like, remember this, because it'll be relevant eventually. Sometimes it's just like, oh, okay, good to know. And sometimes it's like, why would this be relevant later? I plead the fifth. <laughs> but yeah, I do want us to keep that in mind for later. And then the detail that was very, very important to the storyline is that we find out, thanks to Becky, that Bella gave the cult to a demon named Crowley. I remember at the end of the episode, we were all, everyone was so excited that we had finally gotten to a point where Crowley was at least name dropped. I will say with complete transparency, I'm aware of the name. And that is literally where my knowledge of Crowley ends. I think our friend Carol once brought him up or her or it up to us. On the acting side of things, how he kind of had some like butting head moments of being an actor on the show. But like as a character, as an entity, as a... I guess we know it's a demon, but otherwise, like, 
You are going to adore Crowley. That's all I'm going to say. And I mean, again, we know demon. We have not confirmed whether or not a dog. So I don't know yet. <laughs> Maybe a dog demon. I don't know. Oh, demon doggos, please. I want some help. Heck puppers. <laughs> Let's move on to story time. Today, our theme is devotion. Do you want to tell us a little bit about your understanding of devotion? Well, to me, I've always sort of seen devotion as a non-romantic, like, affection for someone. If I'm looking for the right words to kind of use there, it's like the, I'm having trouble putting words on without using the word devotion. I know, right? It's hard. No, no, no. I totally get it. And, and, but you're right. It is basically love, loyalty, or enthusiasm. And it comes from Latin devovere, which means to consecrate. So we can hear like the religious undertones in that word, in, in my opinion anyway. Uh, so if we lean into that a little bit, in the religious sense, devotion means worship or observance. Would it share any roots with the term devour? Yes and no. It's also a Latin root, but devour comes from devorare, which means to, like, to swallow, to swallow down, to eat, basically. But they're so close, but not related. Right. They are very close, but not related. Interestingly enough, we will have an episode about devouring or cravings in this season. Oh, good. A vor episode. Great. <laughs> oh my God. It's so funny that you bring this up because I literally just listened to the uh, to Monster of the Week and they talk about that. And that is how I know what that means. <laughs> Oh, no. I didn't Here know I until then. You didn't know what that meant. No, I know. <laughs> Thanks, Chris and Jeremy. <laughs> it's, I, I've spent a lot of time at Comic Cons doing like really bad fanfic readings for fun. And Vore is a very common theme for those. Let's move away from devouring and move back into devotion. Do you want to get us started with Dean? So I, I, this might come off as repetitive, so I'm going to say it at the top with both Sam and Dean. There really isn't much development for them this episode. Like, really, I had such trouble finding the theme in them. The theme itself in the episode, very apparent. But in them specifically, it's because they're almost the side characters. For Dean, the, the biggest thing for me is it's just the, like, devotion to the job like no matter what it's getting everyone safe like while there is that level of not getting it or not like being a fan of the events going on like both of them play it off as like i don't like this like i can't really recall a moment in the episode where either one of them was particularly like laughing at something that happens at the event it really is just them being like this is stupid the whole way through or kind of like begrudgingly being there Again, and it's not like a huge revelation, they're not going to not do their job. They're not going to not save everyone and keep them safe and do their best to, like, let anyone get hurt. Like, they're, do they're, they're doing their job. It really is to the point for both of them, they just do what they need to do to get everything done. They follow their roles. It's like the devotion is there just to, like, keeping the status quo almost. I think maybe it's because it's a quintessential episode of Supernatural, like a true monster of the week in that sense, where, you know, what we see in them is what they usually show. They usually pick something about one or both of them that needs to be examined and, like, put it in the spotlight. 
And here they really don't. Uh, as we'll get to later, I really feel like the true heroes and story of this episode is our uh, unwittingly heroic uh, couple. But I will say that, like, I found that this episode did have some depth, especially for Dean. Looking back and reflecting on this episode, this feels like this could have been such a good playground to have Sam and Dean differ on how they view this event. And I feel like if I had to put pen to paper and write that version of the episode, it would be Dean who would see the humor in it more. He would engage with the activities a little bit more. Exactly. Like he would have a little bit of fun. Like he's like, I could see them going to the bar and him ordering a drink named after a thing they fought and having a good laugh about it. And then maybe seeing like a, like a Gordon themed drink and being like, Oh, that's a little too much. I will say that I know for a fact that some writers on the show agree with what you're saying. What, what depth in Dean did I miss this week? It's really not obvious. <laughs> I have to dig deep. From the road so far, some of like Dean's really deepest traumas are brought up. Like the moment in Dream in a Little Dream of Me where he confronts his demon self and basically like the whole arc of like half of season two where he's having to cope with the fact that his father, his father who he obeyed like a soldier, right? Basically told him that he would have to kill Sam if he couldn't keep him safe. And he's literally like confronted with that as he's watching people cosplaying his own life, like his own traumas for fun. And so like, that's the climate for Dean in this whole episode. Like everything that he has devoted his life to being used as entertainment. Oh. And that's not to say that like Sam, it's not the same for Sam, right? Because I'm sure that like, it feels the same way for Sam, but for some reason, the writers of this particular episode chose to put the emphasis on Dean. We've talked about how much Dean is wearing a disguise most of the time. So literally seeing people view him as his disguise versus who he really is, that's gotta suck. Oh, oh, for sure. I mean, he hates every second of it and he's not, you know, shy to show that he hates every minute of it. Which is, you know what? And that feels so out of character for him. Because I think this is the kind of thing he would relish in, how silly it is. But because it's people seeing his trauma as their, their entertainment, not knowingly, but also seeing people see him as just the persona he gives off. It's all, it really feels kind of monkey paw there for a moment of like, he puts on this persona to hide his true self. And now he has a room full of people who truly just see that side of him. And he goes like, oh, I hate that. I don't know how much Dean likes himself, to put it very mildly. For all of the reasons that we've discussed in previous seasons and episodes, we're not going to go over all of them. To see people who are like, who are showing back to you the things that you don't like about yourself is just like, or at least must be really, really upsetting. The crux of the question isn't so much like, why do you want to be like those guys? It's why do you want to be like me? Like there is basically, he's like, there's nothing to love. There's nothing to, to be proud of about being like me. And that's the question that Damien and Barnes actually answer at the end of the episode. And sadly, there isn't that much to Sam. I, I'll completely yeah, agree I was with about, you. I was about to say, I'm like, we're going to move on to Sam in a second. And I'm like now going, well, is there more to Sam that we missed? 
What did you think about Sam apart from like what you've already talked about for both of them? That's really it though. I feel like there isn't much more. I feel like we kind of spoiled Sam in the Dean section because really I admit that I feel like neither of them is the main character this week and the focus is really on the event itself. Dean at least has some room to shine a little bit because he kind of is like the lead on this case. And Sam is even more in the background because of that. You know, to kind of use the verbiage from our last episode, I feel like Sam is really devoted to playing his role. And, you know, not the vessel of Lucifer role, but like the good brother role, like the role of Sam in the supernatural books kind of thing, almost. He's there for Dean, like he's, and again, like he's being a ridiculously good hunter. Like if you look at the stuff that he pulls in this episode, like he is a great hunter in this episode. Yeah, he feels, he probably feels super weird also about the whole supernatural convention thing, in addition to like the whole Becky thing, which we'll talk about later. You know, like he doesn't really outwardly show that to the fans. Yeah, it really feels like he's playing his role. Much like I said with Dean at the top, kind of like, kind of like I feel like forcing the the square peg in the round hole here. The devotion is there, but the devotion is just to getting the job done and to being, you know, a good brother. Can we talk about Barnes and Damien now? Yeah, of course. Why don't Why don't you get us started? For those who are at our live watch, I preach this several times, so I want to go into a bit more detail here. But these two, I compare to uh, the classic comic relief characters you would get in a lot of TV shows. And very specifically, the earliest memory I have of a comic relief character was Bulk and Skull from the original Mighty Morphin Power Rangers. And while they were just sort of like, they, they were the two kids in school, and I say kids because they were clearly, every actor on the show was easily in their late 20s and they're supposed to be like high schoolers. But they were like the classic school bully, even being down to being the larger guy and his skinnier counterpart. Like, it's really like a trope, these two. Just like this episode did in a very condensed way they did in Power Rangers. While they think they're hot shit and all that, they think they're the, you know, here they think they're the best LARPers. They thought they were the best kids in school. The end result is they eventually realize like, oh, when push comes to shove and there's actual danger on the table and the world has to turn and look to me because I'm the only one who can help in that instance... I'm going to go 110 fucking percent and do it right. And that to me is like, while it is a trope, and I think, I I honestly think it started with the Power Rangers. Maybe there's some earlier examples. I'm sure someone can give me some, but I feel like that one is just so important to me that to have it in this show with these two who just go from being, this is fun, we're playing a game, we're having a good time, to maybe not the world needs us, but there is there is something to be done. People need to be saved. This isn't a game anymore. And not just running away, but doubling down with the, if they can do it, if our heroes can do it, why can't we be like them? Oh, just so much love for those two. Yeah, I mean, I think you said it really well. Like, we're basically seeing, like, the the best of the transformative power of fiction in these two characters. And it's really because of their devotion to the characters of Sam and Dean and like what the brothers stand for that like they manage to better themselves like through this radical bravery that they show in this episode. It almost feels like they're in our shoes for a little bit as like the viewers of this content. Uh, They're having their own like call to action moment, literally, 
they're now seeing that like you know we've read these books we've 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 lived these books they've truly been fans they've truly idolized these these characters that when you know whether or not I, I think by the end we realize they don't actually believe they're the true Sam and Dean. No, they don't. I don't think so. <laughs> but I think they at that point realize like regardless of who these two think they are, this is real. This is actually happening. We need to put on our brave faces and do this, not because it's like we're like in it. It's because it's the right thing to do, and that's what the, that's what our heroes would do. Like, you see the way they run away in the cemetery the first time they start even just digging up bodies to literally going to do it themselves like an hour later because they realize what the stakes are. Yeah. Oh, I honestly, yeah, I love, love this arc for them. Love it. Absolutely love it. And I mean, if we're talking about devotion, I think we also have to talk about their devotion to each other. Like, you know... I, I think it's really cool that they're like in this relationship and that they make efforts to do the things that they both enjoy, you know? And yeah, I was like, I want to go LARPing. <laughs> I, I've been trying to get the wife to do a couple's cosplay for years. Oh, oh. I also sort of wanted to briefly talk about Becky and particularly the moment near the beginning of the episode when like she screams like, well, if you don't like the books, don't read them. And I, I, I want to address this because to me, that screams like toxic fandom, the negative side of devotion, I guess, uh, when you're so devoted to something that even like the slightest critique or criticism is seen as like an attack. And in my experience in fandom, like this is uh, a tactic that's often used to silence valid critique from marginalized folks uh, when they talk about the object of fandom, whether that's uh, institution, like a TV show or a movie or a franchise, uh, or even a person. The number of times that people have left like really nasty comments on our like critical TikToks uh, saying like, well, if you don't even like the show, why do you spend so much time talking about it? And like, ugh. You're allowed to love the show, but hate aspects of it. But you're also allowed to just say like, you could have done better, right? Like... <laughs> As someone in the gaming world, the number of games I play that I adore, but I look back on going like, those were really terrible levels or poorly designed or I hate the mechanics or like, like I look at myself going like, like, but I love the game. Like I love as a whole. <laughs> right. And like, I also want to highlight that like I'm a white person. Uh, and so like, it's even worse. That backlash is even worse for uh, black and indigenous folks. So I think we need to highlight that. Shall we head to critical time? Yeah. I'm very curious to know who was behind this episode because to write an episode about a supernatural convention. I mean, only Eric Kripke could have pulled it off and he did so with Nancy Weiner. This episode was also directed by James L. Conway, who directed a few episodes, a couple of episodes this season and one last season. I cannot recall the last time Eric Kripke direct wrote an episode that was not a season opener or a season finale the last episode that eric kripke wrote that was neither a season uh opener or a closer i guess or finale uh was heaven and hell okay so still a pretty big one and this is kind of where my critical time is going to take us like i think the fact that he wrote this is very telling about how he views the relationship between the show and the fans you know, that it like says a lot more now knowing that he wrote it versus just another writer. 
Uh, yeah, because that was literally the last one before after that. In season three, he only wrote the opener and the finale. Season two, same. And then we go back to season one where he wrote uh, Shadow, Home, Bloody Mary, Wendigo, all of those. Yeah, first season, though, I think is pretty exceptional. You expect the lead writer to kind of write the most of it, the showrunner to write the majority of it when it's his story. I think that this is a very important episode. I think this is one of those rare cases where it's a very important Kripke episode. Well, it's really important and a Kripke episode, but more for critical reason than story reason. 100%. Should we go and have a look at the Hunter's Journal this week? Let's do it. My old journal is sitting next to the computer. It has been for a while. Unlike other hunters, I've moved on from keeping a physical journal, but you know, I still take field notes. So it's handy when I'm writing up proper text on my modern digital archive. I've known many hunters lose their journal to hazards of the occupation, but I've yet to face the claw or fang of a creature that knows how to get into my PC, let alone my emails. Maybe when we start seeing ghosts from a more modern day, I'll reconsider. But tonight's hunt went about as smooth as one could go. You know, dealt with some undead thing. Never seen him before, but they were similar enough to things I'd faced, and, you know, silver stunned him, and fire left nothing but ashes behind, so... Once I found their hideaway, I torched them and made sure nothing but ashes was left. I like to make sure I finish a job. Overall, not much to update here, but... Hold on a second. What's going on upstairs? Ugh, oh, stupid cat knocked something over again. I'm really starting to see why most hunters get a dog and not a cat, but, um... They're a little more useful, I guess. Well, uh, I tend to disagree, but that's another thought for another day. So... I've updated my monster log, and we'll need to do some sketches later to uh, get some visual rep. What the hell was that? One second. Ashes. Oh, shit! Wow! Oh, this... I feel like they're getting... that Your, your Hunter's Journal entries are getting more and more interactive. <laughs> trying to find new ways to spice them up. I feel like I'm like... I feel like I've created a character now, so... <laughs> Like, are all of these entries from the same journal, from different journals? Like, what's the what's the story of all of that? I sort of wonder if there's a thread. I feel like the narrating hunter has died a few times already, so I'm not sure if that's possible. But then again... It's supernatural. It's supernatural. Death means nothing. It's not permanent for most people. So I know you've hinted at your thoughts for this week, but I really want to get into them. What do you got for us this week? Yeah, so like with our theme, I think it's important to talk about like the setting of the episode and how that relates to devotion. Because the setting is obviously like a fan convention, and I, I, I don't want to gloss over that. Because the fans that are at the convention are like devoted with like all in caps, right? Like in universe, this is a pretty obscure series of books that's like out of print and the fans are still showing up. And even if it is a small convention, like it's still a convention, they're showing up in costume. Like this is a pretty lively convention, frankly. One thing that we didn't really talk about, and I don't know if you noticed, but like Chuck seems so embarrassed the entire time. And I don't know if it's just him being like an awkward little guy that just doesn't want to be perceived or if it's because he's genuinely embarrassed like of his fans you know he tells Sam and Dean at the very beginning like I'm sorry for everything uh, and this is sort of one of those cases where I wonder like who is the butt of the joke in the episode like is it is it the show 
or is it the fans? And I think that obviously, like, if you were to ask this to different people in the fandom, like, uh, different people would have different answers to that. And that that's totally fine. Like the reality is probably somewhere in the middle. And I, I do want to look at how fans are portrayed because there's Becky who is clearly just looking to score with Sam and basically has like some sort of imaginary relationship with him only to then like, quote unquote, break up with him, uh, in order to date Chuck, the writer of the books, which like, there is so much to unpack just in that one sentence. Then there's the fact that like most of the fans in the room seem to be men, which I found really interesting considering how the real life supernatural fandom certainly has many more women than men. I mean, we see it just ourselves with our own patrons and listeners. Like it's a lot of women. Uh, And finally, there's also like the joke uh, that a lot of the fans are like unattractive. And that's kind of evidenced in my opinion, by like Dean's interaction with the actress who plays Letitia Gore, who, by the way, is not named, does not have a name in the script. Like she is literally so taken aback at how attractive Dean is compared to the other guys at the convention. And I think that you could also argue that Damien and Barnes are meant to be portraying like people who are not attractive, not conventionally attractive, right? I think you've touched upon that. Obviously, like, that's not only a supernatural thing. Like, there's this longstanding tradition of, like, portraying fans in general as unattractive and awkward in many TV shows and movies and franchises, et cetera, et cetera. But there's also, a part, there's, like, this big part of me that resents that because no matter how unattractive or awkward, like, your fans are literally the reason that you can still make media. Like, they're the ones watching your show, buying your merch, writing in to ask for more episodes and all that. So, like... I do find it sad that like Supernatural, big brackets, Eric Kripke, right? This is written by Eric Kripke, uh, chose to go that route in their, in this meta episode and portrayed their fans the way that they did. That being said, (laughs) I think it was really powerful to have Damien, the fan of the, of the book, explain to Dean the character, quote unquote, what the story of Supernatural is really about. I find that to be like an acknowledgement that fans do see more than the people who are constantly in the story and that they understand the story differently than the actual creators of the show. Partway through that, my mind started doing the Rolodex of, you're right, like how many shows have you seen where they have the Comic-Con episode and like, the class of like unattractive pimples and glasses and like bad haircuts and like cheap costumes. Is it just like, like even like I, I will admit the big bang theory did an episode. They go to comic-con and they still make other fans seem nerdier than the nerdy cast of the show. There's a lot to be said about the big bang theory to begin with, in my opinion. So I'm like, I don't want to open that can of worms, but like all of those shows are making fun of, fandoms in general this is specifically fans of this content i find that you have to have big dick energy to make fun of your own fans like that so openly and not in a good way kind of thing there's the big dick energy that like lizzo sings about and being awesome and like not giving a shit and then there's the big dick energy of you just have a lot of energy and you're a big dick it fits in that way, certainly. And I think that to a certain degree, it's it's like 
almost as if, and I'm, I'm gonna, I'm gonna say Kripke because he wrote it, but like, you know, uh, please don't sue me allegedly, uh, or in my interpretation or in my opinion, it almost feels as if like, it's basically sending the message that like the creators are resentful for the fans that they got because those are not the fans that they wanted. Like they felt like they deserved like better fans, more attractive fans, less awkward fans or whatever, you know, like I, I, I don't really know how to understand it other than that. And the only redeeming thing about it, like I said, is that moment at the end where like you realize that the person who knew the most about the show or who understood the show the best is actually, you know, the fan. The sheer irony of that. I know. And and even Becky, uh, you know, she's the one to give like this big piece of information to Sam, right? Like about the cult. So again, showing that fans pay more attention. So yeah, I find that very ambiguous. I don't know how to... I don't know what sense to make out of that. And that's why I'm saying like the reality is probably somewhere in between in terms of like how they feel about fans and, and, and fandom of this show. I don't think I can put a better point on it than you have, but it really just feels so weirdly out of place. It does. Let's go have a look at what our community has to say. This week, we have a message from Moss, but before we read it to you, we want to remind you to send us a three-minute voicemail. To respond to anything we discussed today, you can use the recording app on your phone and just email us the recording at carryingwayward at gmail.com. We do need more voicemails for season five. We also want to remind you that Drew and I are going to be answering the question, who do you think is the wealthy Scandinavian investor who funded new volumes of the Supernatural book series for our Roadhouse patrons and coffee supporters on our Impala Talk? This is a message from Moss. Hey, Mary and Drew. I've been rewatching Supernatural lately, and it got me thinking of Dean having DID again. If you didn't know, DID is a traumagenic disorder where trauma survivors develop alters in order to cope with their trauma. I am an alter in a system myself, so a lot of this is based off my personal experience. Dean shows a lot of DID traits throughout the series, including amnesia, the deleted line from the Scooby Natural, I don't remember anything from when I was in 18 to when I was 27, for example. Ooh, wow. Systems are also often formed during childhood trauma, which Dean definitely has. Dean's odd, inconsistent behavior makes more sense when you give in the context of DID, as does his gender confusion. Figuring out your gender is difficult when there are different headmates with different gender identities coexisting, and it's very common for systems to be described by outsiders as inconsistent. Is this just a result of shoddy writing? Probably, but I relate to Dean heavily enough that I enjoy projecting onto him. All this to say, I was wondering where you thought of Dean having DID, or as I refer to the headcanon, D-Dean, D-I-D-Dean, I don't know how you pronounce that, but I love the way it's written as D-I-D-E-A-N. Sorry for all the word vomit, Moss, any pronouns. Oh, I do love that. I think you said it really, really well, Moss, in your message. Like, you know, I think we all love to project on our on our favorite characters, especially if for better or worse, they've lived through similar situations that we have, where they have similar reactions to situations. I don't know much about DID, so I don't really want to go into that too, too much. However, I will adopt the Mark Hamill model where like he basically said at a conference, like 
if you think Luke is gay, then he's gay. Like if it brings you comfort and if it helps you, you know, we're talking about literally like the transformative power of fiction in, in this episode. And so like, if for whatever reason it brings you comfort to see Dean as having DID, then I am on board, right? Like I can't talk about it because it's not something that's, that I'm familiar with, but like, I see, I see your analysis and I'm like, yeah, I, I get that 100%. Sure. Let's do it. Right. So it's, it's, and I'm sort of, again, we talked about like toxic fandom. So I'm also going to kind of remind people that when people present you with like headcanons or theories or like readings that you have necessarily haven't really seen before, try to welcome it with open arms because sometimes like that means a lot to the person who's talking to you about it. Hearing an understanding of Dean that I had never thought about before just makes my understanding of Dean even better, even wider. So there you go. Honestly, thank you so much for sharing this with us. I, I'm i down. If you want to send us like more information about why you think so, where you see it, like I would love to see that. Right away, my mind goes back to a moment where another uh, message or voicemail came in and we had a reading of Dean as being um, trans male. And I love getting those readings from different listeners and different fans because it opens up, like you said, so many different ways of looking at the character and understanding the character. I myself, uh, my knowledge of the idea is quite limited. I know I've consumed media that has involved it before. Again, how well they did that, I don't know. So I don't want to assume that I have a good knowledge of it other than what I was fed by media, which as we all know, can be pretty bad. But even just from your message, I can see what you mean in the way that the way Dean is written from week to week, from scene to scene, there are some times where things just don't add up. And this could be a way of making sense of it. And I love that. I mean, even just, I think like we we joked so much about the implied headcanons here. Like my theory that Dean is great at playing guitar and can draw really good. I think that just taking information that you have, whether it be personal or learned, and applying it to a character to make sense of things that otherwise don't seem to have a logic to them is just a great way of interacting with characters in media and developing attachment to characters and using them to project on to help you better handle situations yourself and themes, I think is wonderful. So thank you so much for this message. Genuinely, thank you. And if you have more information you want to share with us, please. And if you yourself have a reading of Sam or Dean, I feel like we need a Sam one eventually. I think this tells us a little something about who is listening to this podcast. <laughs> All the Dean girls. <laughs> I know there has been um, conversation regarding Sam being Arrow or Ace or both. And I, I love that those readings exist. I love it. Shall we head to our calls to action and reflections for the week? Yeah. We're recording this episode basically in, in a time where like I'm really struggling with like my own relationship and my own involvement in fandom, kind of wondering like where I fit in, even if I fit in at all, and like if it's like really my place. And I guess that my call to action, which, you know, might feel like a cop out, is just to kind of like sit in that discomfort because I don't have an answer yet. (laughs) 
maybe off air we can discuss this just between us if you need someone to talk to you about this as someone who is stupidly involved in many fandoms i i know where you're coming from and you know or if it's something you need to just reel with and let it let it wash over you and see where you come out the other side like every option is valid yeah there you go i think i'm just gonna like wait it out for now and just kind of see like how i feel <laughs> okay well let me go with my silly call to action to hopefully try to, try to like end this episode on a stupid note because i think you'll have a good laugh at this one but as i said i feel like a silly episode because while this episode had some great moments and we definitely had some good like growth opportunity i think more on the critical side than the story side as i said Minus our revelation about Crowley I forgot about until the last second. This episode has made me reflect on something that I have been... You know that thing where you kind of have like a project you want to start, but you keep stopping yourself from starting because you're not in the right spot to do it yet? So there has been something on my mind that I've wanted to do for a long time, and I feel like I talk myself into it every once in a while and never come through with it. But seeing Damien in Barnes this week, I am committed to cosplay. Oh, that's very exciting. I have a few characters from different shows and animes that I think are like within the realm of doable without going over the top. But if you or any of our listeners have suggestions, get to me on Twitter, Discord, socials. I'd love to hear your pitches for what you think I could pull off. And I, for me, the biggest issue is always a body image thing. As much as I've never really like, eh, I'll be very frank. I don't love the way I look and I struggle with it here and there. But I generally try to be positive about it uh, for myself. I know being a bigger cosplayer has definitely been a more difficult challenge for a lot of cosplayers who are larger. And I'm seeing more and more of them just say like, screw it and do it and get out there and live their beautiful lives. And I appreciate them for that. So they, along with the fictional cosplayers this week, have inspired me that fuck it, I can do it too. The transformative power of fiction. I absolutely love this. You've been listening to Carrying Wayward, a supernatural podcast produced by Rochelle Castellano, hosted by Mary Vigahu and myself, Drew Schulman. Thank you to our Bunker patrons, Katira, Michelle, and Elle for their generous support. This week, we'd like to thank Moss for their message. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, and YouTube using at Carrying Wayward, and leave us a rating and a review on your podcast service of choice. And don't forget to join our Coffee or Patreon for perks and extra content. You can use the link in all of our social media bios or go directly to carryingwayward.com. Carry on our wayward friends. Mwah, mwah. A supernatural podcast produced by... Produ- produced? Produced? <laughs> Pro- produced? Produce! <laughs> I need the best juice. None of this amateur juice. Produce. <laughs>